Hi, I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, a podcast where I talk to the people who create the cool, nerdy stuff you love. We're on the web at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. I'm speaking with Dr. Barry Lucella, author of Exploring Science Through Science Fiction. Thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. So first, uh, tell me, how did you get into a, how did you get into writing a book like this? Well, it's an amazing story of perfect timing. Mm-hmm. I was for about eight years the director of a summer enrichment program for talented high school students in the sciences, and we lost our state funding as a casualty of the global financial meltdown in two thousand eight. So uh, I found myself in need of a creative outlet, and I asked my department head if I could expand the, uh, the mini science fiction course that I taught for some years and turn it into a full semester course. So the timing of that coincided with the release of the 2009 J.J. Abrams reboot of the Star Trek franchise. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the... Uh, one of the lead actors, Zachary Quinto, is the new Mr. Spock, who is a Carnegie Mellon graduate, as am I. Uh, so the university made a big deal of that. They, they interviewed me for the, uh, the, the course that I was teaching on science and science fiction and uh, sort of timed that very well. And I suppose that's how word got out that I was doing this course. One of the publishing editors from Springer contacted me uh, just out of the blue and asked if he could come and talk to me about books that I might want to see published. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that I had enough material to turn my course into a textbook, and he liked the idea, and it kind of went from there. Okay. So uh, tell me about the book then. How does it, how does it approach the subject? So it's not the traditional approach that a, uh, a science textbook would take. It uses science fiction as a springboard for discussing real science and cutting-edge technology and things like that. So uh, lots of references to science fiction movie clips and television episode clips. And then we start from there and uh, discuss the science in the movie clips, and then move on to talk about the real science. Mm-hmm. So, what uh, what fields of science do you tend to focus on, and you know what kind of uh, um, examples do you pull? So, I am a physicist by training, and roughly half of the book is more oriented toward physics. Then the rest uh, explores other topics. But we start with really objective things, like what is the nature of space and time. And I pull things from uh, movies that talk about relativistic time dilation due to uh, relative motion and gravitational time dilation, the distortion of space-time. And then we move on to discuss what the universe is made of, the distribution of matter and energy, and the interactions of matter and energy. Then uh, on to the question of whether a, uh, a machine could ever become aware of its own existence. 
So the, the approaching singularity that lots of people talk about, will that ever happen? And if so, how soon is it likely to happen? Mm-hmm. Then we shift to more uh, life form things. So the question of are we alone in the universe and how do we search for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence and uh, then move on to biology and biotechnology and what it means to be human from a scientific and philosophical perspective. Mm-hmm. And then we get more speculative. Uh, what will the future of our technological society look like? Mm-hmm. So how do you approach, you know, when you talk about science fiction, there's hard science fiction, which is stuff that's uh, feasible because, um, uh, you know, you have, you have theories that have a, 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 you know, a basis, a good foundation, and then you have some stuff in science fiction that's, you know, they call it science fantasy, where it's like, you know, this would never happen. It's just kind of cool sounding. How, how do you, um, do you approach that at all? Do you discuss Yeah, the that? whole spectrum, actually. Uh, so for me, the enjoyment of a work of science fiction doesn't necessarily include getting the science right. And, uh, and the, the J.J. Abrams 2009 Star Trek movie is a perfect example of that. It's a brilliant movie, but all of the science is absolute nonsense. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, we actually have more fun in class talking about works of science fiction where the science is not plausible. Mm-hmm. And we talk about why that is. But we also include some really good examples, uh, and it's the, the 1968 Planet of the Apes movie opens with a really amazing, scientifically accurate introduction to uh, relativistic time dilation. Hmm. And actually look at the ship's chronometer while Charles Lynn Heston is doing his uh, 90-second monologue, and you can see the time that elapsed back on Earth about 700 years. You can see the time that elapsed in the moving frame of reference of the ship, which is only about six months. And from that information, you can calculate what the average speed of the ship must have been. Mm-hmm. But the director of that movie goes even farther. Uh, he wouldn't have had to do this extra detail, but he shows a shot of the chronometer with the days turning over back on Earth. Mm-hmm. So three days pass while Charlton Heston is doing his opening monologue. And from that, you can calculate the current speed of the ship. Mm-hmm. And turns out to be greater than the average speed, which means acceleration. Mm. And, and that level of technical detail you don't see in movies very often. It's, it's really remarkable that he chose to do that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. How, how many of uh, the students, your students, uh, tend to be scientists who are trying to get a little bit into the arts versus how many are into the humanities that are interested in science? It's a mix. So it's kind of what I had hoped for. I wanted to reach an audience that are not necessarily technically oriented. And I do get some people majoring in fine arts and some people majoring in the humanities and uh, language arts and social sciences and so forth. And I also get a lot of computer science majors who are just into the science based stuff. Mm-hmm. So... So I have an answer in mind for this question, but I won't say it. So which of the many science fiction properties out there, which one do you think um, has been the most inspiring for for scientists, you know, st- undergrads and maybe grads? Probably the 
advances in artificial intelligence and machine, the possibilities of machine consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's really, really speculative, of course. Mm -hmm. But Carnegie Mellon is world famous for its Robotics Institute and mm -hmm. School of Computer Science. Uh, so roughly half of my students are interested into uh, interested in the CS and robotics discussions. Okay, that's it. Though, though my question was more about um, which we'll explore more of the AI. But uh, which um, films or movies or movies or books would you say inspire people the most as far as sci-fi? Oh, I I see what you mean. Yeah, uh, that is actually a function of time. Hmm. Um, believe it or not, in this age when you can access any movie that was ever filmed and enjoy it uh, at your personal convenience, it seems more and more that if the movie was made before the students were born, it doesn't exist. Hmm. So they, they're mainly interested in the modern stuff mm -hmm. and not so much in the classics, even though the classics are... Uh, pretty cool. They may not have the fancy special effects that computer technology makes possible, but they—they mm -hmm. uh, they like the new stuff and not the classics. Interesting, because most of the interviews I've done, uh, scientists—you know, the older scientists—you know, say Star Trek was what inspired them. And I've also been told in Britain, Doctor Who has been an inspiration, you know, to get kids into science over there. You know, in the in the English Commonwealth. Yeah, certainly Star Trek was my inspiration. That's how I got into science fiction in the first place. I grew up watching the original series hmm. and uh, have enjoyed the, the various spin-offs since then. I am a big fan of Doctor Who, hmm. but the science in Doctor Who is... Uh, I, I don't know... How much uh, grounding in reality Doctor mm -hmm. Who is. It's so much fun to watch. It's so imaginative. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the inspirational science, yeah, I would say Star Trek is uh, is very inspirational and has in fact inspired a lot of current technology that didn't exist at the time. Yeah, I wonder at the time how much of what they showed seemed like science fantasy then, and now people, you know, like you know, cell phones and the whole. You know, communicator on the chest kind of thing, you know, where they yes. tap it. Well, those are the obvious ones. The the flip open communicator is what inspired me to buy my first mobile phone. Hmm. It's the uh, the Motorola StarTac looked so much like the Star Trek communicator. I thought, I just, I have to have one of those. <laughs> uh, but uh, communication technology and computer technology, the, the idea of speaking to a computer and it understands what you're saying mm -hmm. and does what you ask it to do, that was just pure imagination in the 1960s, and now we've all got it in our pockets. Mm -hmm. um, so about AI, artificial intelligence, what, uh, what movies and books do you think are good... Um, good stepping points for people to, uh, you know, get their imagination going about what could actually happen with it. Well, Isaac Asimov's robot novels, mm -hmm. uh, The Laws of Robotics, he kind of started the whole idea of programming machines with safeguards mm -hmm. so that they would do what you tell them to do, but not harm another human being if you tell them to do something inappropriate. Mm -hmm. 
so I would start with Asimov, and then as far as movies, Forbidden Planet is remarkable. The uh, Robbie of the Robot, uh, there are so many illustrations of the laws of robotics in Robbie. Um, of course, I, Robot with Will Smith is based on, uh, on the collection of short stories by Asimov. And then there's Star Trek's Commander Data. Mm-hmm. It's the perfect example of a sentient machine. Will we ever reach that point in our technology where something like data could be possible? Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, so all the explorations of AI basically involve, um, sounds like the examples you use are humanoid robots, but then you also have, you know, HAL 9000 and 2001 or more uh, non-human-looking machines. Yeah. So the HAL 9000 was actually an eye-opener for me. In the movie, it self-identifies as a computer. Mm-hmm. But our robotics experts say, no, it is actually an intelligent robot because it has sensors and it makes decisions and it controls things. So the HAL 9000 really qualifies as an intelligent robot mm-hmm. and just a computer. Uh, something a little more recent is PIN, the uh, physically independent neural network from the movie Transcendence. Hmm. It's a quantum computer, and uh, it engages in a sort of philosophical conversation with one of the humans. The human asks the computer, can you prove that you are self-aware? And the computer responds, that's a difficult question. Can you prove that you are? <laughs> so I pose that as a question for thought to my students. If you had to prove that you were self-aware, how would you go about doing it? Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of interesting responses to that. Yeah, I'm sure. Thinking about quantum computing, that's, of course, you know, been talked about a lot lately, and now it's, I guess, much more in the news. Is Can you think of any uh, science fiction films or books uh, that are good, good to spur the imagination as far as quantum computing to get your, you know, get people's heads around it. The only one that I know of that uh, exploits that concept is transcendence, hmm. and I'm sure there will be more coming soon. the The field is really very new, hmm. and quantum computers are just being developed experimentally, hmm. so they. They're not at the point where they can do uh, lots of really, really interesting applications yet. Mm-hmm. It's still in, in the realm of, uh, of inspiration and development. So as far as uh, physics, are there any um, books or films that we haven't mentioned yet that you think are really good to, um, to get people interested in physics? Well, anything involving space travel mm-hmm. and propulsion mechanisms. Uh, Forbidden Planet is a great one from its physics and material science and energy transfer. Hmm. Uh, the ray guns that can vaporize an object, you can imagine calculating how much power a handheld weapon would need in order to vaporize an object. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's lots of physics in the Star Trek Next Generation. Not all of it is right. Some of it is total nonsense, but mm-hmm. uh, 
Next Generation series seems to have quite a lot of uh, solid science and totally speculative science. Have you uh, have you been able to determine um, movies movies that use more science advisors? I, I don't know if your research has gone this far, but have you noticed um, whether whether movies that use science advisors just get it right more often than those that don't, or is it hit or miss? I think it's it's kind of hit and miss. Um, Interstellar does a fabulous job of dealing with gravitational time dilation and wormholes and time travel and things like that. So that that's a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall if Kip Thorne was brought in as an advisor or if they consulted him kind of after the fact to comment on the black hole Gargantua. But that that's a pretty notable one as far as representing uh, in a sort of believable way how black holes and wormholes might work. Mm -hmm. Are there any um, other aspects of the book that we haven't covered yet? Any sort of interesting issues that you might want to mention? Yeah, one chapter that I kind of skipped over was uh, how do we use science and technology to solve the problems facing society? And I go into good use of science to solve problems and problems that are really not amenable to a purely technological solution because they involve human behavior, which is not likely to be fixed by technology. Hmm. And uh, I go into the misrepresentation of science as an advertising tool to get people to buy products. So... uh, Things of that sort are fun to explore. Mm-hmm. So how did you uh, go about researching the book? Did you just basically pluck the things that you're familiar with and um, discuss them, or was there any any other things you did to write this? Uh, a lot of watching of science fiction movies and TV episodes and pulling the scenes that could be used as springboards for discussion. Mm-hmm. I did... Uh, read quite a few books that were related to the current work, mm-hmm. some historical sources, uh, including things like the uh, the history of transplantation surgery to tie in with Frankenstein. Yeah. Is that, does Fra- do you have Frankenstein in your book? You discuss Frankenstein? Yes, yes, I do. Um, mainly from the perspective of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Mary Shelley does an amazing job, even though she was not a scientist herself, obviously. She really gets it mm-hmm. when it comes to what does it take to inspire a young person to go into the field of science, how you catch that spark of uh, curiosity that drives you to want to do something that nobody's ever done before. Mm-hmm. So you can really explore the human dimensions of being a scientist and the human dimensions of the monster that he creates, the longing for relationship mm-hmm. uh, that drives the story, basically. Um, do you ever, you know, zombies, you know, there's a lot of recent zombie stories have, have said, have used the idea that biological um, issue, you know, they're, they're biologically based. Um, do you ever, do you get into zombies at all and, and the whole biological uh, viruses kind of thing? I have uh, tried to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think I only brought in zombies in one year when I taught the course, mm -hmm. and it was at the request of one of the students. Mm -hmm. said, can we talk about zombies? And I said, <laughs> you know, there really is no science of zombies as far as I know. It's all voodoo and stuff like that. But, yeah. Uh, I, I guess that is something that certainly could be explored. Mm -hmm. There are biological ideas about what happens to your brain if you get infected with the uh, a weird virus that could paralyze your personality or something. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I haven't really explored those issues. Okay. And I mentioned that because, you know, a lot of people see Frankenstein, you know, the casual reader sees Frankenstein as a horror story, but really it's, I think it's one of the early science fiction uh, novels. There are many experts on speculative fiction that, credit Mary Shelley with writing the first science fiction novel, but there really isn't a lot of science in it. Mm -hmm. There's one line in one of the early chapters where Dr. Frankenstein gathers the instruments of life about him to infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at his feet, mm -hmm. and, and that's all the science. Mm -hmm. It really isn't much. It, it's more psychology and human interactions and so forth. Mm -hmm. it, in the book. Um, I would trace science fiction actually all the way back to Johannes Kepler. Mm -hmm. he, he wrote a story in the, in the early 1600s that wasn't published until after his death, mm -hmm. uh, imagining a trip to another planet that was like Earth but not Earth, and looking at the solar system from a different frame of reference mm -hmm. at a time in history when it was not a uh, particularly safe thing to claim that the sun was the center of the solar system. Mm. So so that work, uh, he called it the dream, or somnium in Latin. Mm. And uh, that, I think, is the earliest work of fiction that really works the science into it, because Kepler was a scientist. Right. So I'd go all the way back to the 1630s and Kepler's dream mm. to begin the literary science fiction. Mm. And I would imagine he was the only one to have really done that for a hundred, two hundred years, something like that. Actually, no. And I was—I just learned this this week. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, I picked up a an album of the original Star Wars movie from mm -hmm. 1977, and it had some background information about the stuff that might have inspired uh, the movie, mm -hmm. and something that I didn't know that Cyrano de Bergerac wrote a story about a trip to the moon in 1650. Hmm. So about 15 years after Kepler's book, uh, de Bergerac wrote a book called uh, A Journey to the Moon or, or something like that. And I haven't read it. I didn't know it existed. Hmm. But there is an example, and he uses uh, the concept of rocket propulsion. I think he gets his people from the Earth to the moon using firecrackers <laughs> as propulsion mechanism. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. So maybe there was more out there that maybe wasn't even um, published widely, you know, just personal personal writings that were put away and, you know. And forgotten, yeah. Fascinating. Um, what part of this research did you find most enjoyable? Oh, that's difficult, because I enjoy exploring so many different topics. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose my favorite was, believe it or not, digging into the way that we use science and technology to solve our 
social and political problems, mm -hmm. and and science in advertising. So, so the two things that popped into my mind when you say that, both one beneficial and one kind of nefarious. Beneficial is uh, better agricultural output. Um, you know, using different technologies to grow. You know, grow in the desert, whatever. And then nefarious-wise, surveillance technology, you know, as that gets better, you know, you can you can protect society in one sense, but also you control it in another. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the privacy issues versus the public safety issues, yeah, there is that tension for sure. Mm -hmm. um, what did you find that was most surprising in your research? And, and in a sense, I guess it's ongoing since you continue to have this class. Yeah, so most surprising, uh, the book is going into a second edition, mm -hmm. uh, expected to be out in a month or so. Mm -hmm. In the first edition, I talk about the giant Earth-destroying spaceships from uh, Independence Day. They're, they're just massive things that hover over the surface of the Earth, and they use the death rays to destroy entire cities. Given the data available in the movie about the mass of the mothership and the dimensions of the attack ships and so forth, you can calculate how much force would be required to keep these things aloft. Mm -hmm. And it, you don't need a death ray. You'd, you'd crush everything underneath the ship just because of the, the force required to keep them hovering. Mm -hmm. um, but I did that calculation without ever stopping along the way to calculate the density of these things. Uh, and I do that in the second edition of the book. And it turns out that the data in the film are completely impossible. Yeah. No material of that density exists. Uh, so then I do something a little more plausible and look at the military hovercraft from the James Bond movie, Die Another Day. Mm -hmm. These massive things heavier than a, uh, a substantial pickup truck can just glide over a minefield without triggering the mines. Mm -hmm. So I looked up some data on landmines that are designed to break the treads on tanks. And what pressure do you need to trigger the mines? And if you distributed the weight of a military vehicle over the entire surface of the hovercraft, would that reduce the pressure? And the answer is yes. So military hovercraft that could glide over a minefield are completely plausible. Huh. But the attack ships in Independence Day are not plausible. <laughs> yeah, so so they're more like floating bulldozers then than uh <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um was there anything that you found particularly difficult to research or come to some conclusion on? Yes, I suppose um, the most difficult was the biological chapter, because I'm not a biologist, so I was exploring out of my comfort zone and had to be sure that I got all the facts straight. Um, one of the reviewers of the first edition commented that my discussion of the plausibility of Jurassic Park was a little off the mark because DNA degrades over a period of time, and after millions of years in a mosquito trapped in amber, there wouldn't be enough DNA of the dinosaur to recreate the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that when I wrote the first edition, but I've done some research since then and got some papers that were recently published on the half-life of DNA. And yeah, the uh, the reviewer was right. Mm-hmm. You can't recreate Jurassic dinosaurs from blood trapped in a mosquito in amber. Mm-hmm. Just not going to happen. There's not enough left to be useful. I, so I, it's an unimaginative thing, but, but uh, it won't work. Well, I think it's good to ha- have the conversation just to bring up, uh, you know, to learn in this way, you know. You make a mistake and people bring in their their information and then everyone knows, you know, knows more. Yes. Um, did you get a lot of that? Did you get a lot of comments from people providing more science to you to help to help make the second edition better? No, that was really the only one. Okay. Uh, the, the only the, the reviews were of the first edition were very positive overall. Okay. But it's that one thing like, no, you can't make a dinosaur from that kind of stuff. Uh, so I fixed that. Oh, okay. The second edition is, is honest about it. Yeah. Okay, good. At the end of the day, what, what do you hope this book will do? My main hope is that it will help non-technical students to appreciate science and be a little less intimidated by science. Mm-hmm. Maybe get them to explore science a little more on their own. So reaching an audience that is not uh, naturally technologically oriented. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you didn't have, uh, I think you spoke before about how you got the book published. You did, it seems like you didn't really have much difficulties in uh, in getting it out, or even a second edition. Well, I was uh, taken by surprise when I was invited to write the book in the first place. Uh, apparently my book, it was the inaugural book in a whole series that Springer developed called Science and Fiction. Hmm. So there are other works out there that explore science and science fiction from different perspectives and some that are more speculative in nature, but my book was the start of that entire series. Hmm. I really was surprised when the editors contacted me and said, would you write a second edition? Hmm. So that, uh, I think writing the second edition was a bigger project than writing the first edition. Hmm. There's uh, so much that has happened since then, both on the screen and in science, that it was a lot of fun and a lot of work putting together the second edition. It's uh, I'm pleased to hear that this topic is popular enough or important enough that uh, there's actually a series, you know, that Springer has a series for it. That's that's pretty cool, cool to hear. I didn't realize it. Yeah, that's... Uh, I haven't got around to buying any of the books in the in the rest of this series, but there are lots of interesting topics, which if I had the time, I would definitely read them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would, too. Um, so after after this edition comes out, it, do you have another writing project in mind? Well, my wife thinks that I have another book in me somewhere, but uh, mm. I don't know yet what that will be. Okay. I've been toying with a few ideas, but uh, time is a factor. So, so maybe, maybe there will be another book in the future, but I, I don't want to promise anything. Okay, okay. Um, where can, can people find you on the, uh, the web? Uh, yeah, I don't have a personal web page. The only web page that I have is my faculty web page at Carnegie Mellon's physics department. Okay, all right. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Um, no, not really. Just uh, thank you so much for the opportunity.
Yeah. Thank you for writing this book. It's it's always cool to um to connect science fiction and, and actual science and uh just learn more from it. I hope it will be an inspiration. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com or on your favorite podcast feed under the title Full Contact Nerd. Please rate the episodes if you like them. It really helps. You can also find more cool stuff on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC. That's Chris without an H. C-R-I-S. On Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. On Facebook at Chris Alvarez WLC. And on Twitter at Chris Alvarez WLC. Please support me by following and liking me on those sites. Thanks and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.